Hey everybody, welcome to Grub Stakers, the podcast about billionaires. This week we're talking about Pincus Green and Mark Rich, the co-founders of Glencore and Bill Clinton favor recipients. Hear the inspiring story of how they were able to uh, bribe government officials in various countries and then get privileged access to their commodities markets, and then flee the U.S. government when it indicted them in 1983, spend 17 years in exile, and then get pardoned by Bill Clinton. All that and more coming up on Grubstakers. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens that they used to beat up the little Jewish boys. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. Hey everybody, welcome to Grubstakers. It's uh, Sean P. McCarthy here, joined as always by Steve Jeffries, Andy Palmer. Uh, Yogi Pollywall is out this week, which uh, makes me the only Grubstakers cast member to have appeared in every single episode, confirming that I am in fact the Tony Soprano of this podcast. <laughs> so uh, good to be here, and we've got a very special episode uh, about two billionaires, uh, one of whom is the Polly. Yeah. We have two uh, two billionaires for you today, uh, Mark Rich and Pincus Green, who were, uh, uh, Mark Rich is, of course, the more well-known of the two, but they were very controversially pardoned by Bill Clinton when he left office in uh, 2001, and... Um, Steve's Bobby. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we're, we're talking about Mark Rich because the Clintons are back in the news this week. I don't know if you heard the tragic story... Yogi's Chris that the most efficient killing machine in American history has struck again. <laughs> uh, on July 10, Tuesday, um, uh, a woman was found dead in the trash compactor outside of Huma Abedin's apartment that she shares with, a or she used to share with Anthony Weiner. Um, she was found dead in the trash compactor, and, um, you know, it's just... Was it a compactor or a dumpster? It was a trash compactor, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's, you know what it is, is the Clintons, they run the most efficient an elite and professional hit squad in the world, and that's why they dump the bodies outside of Huma Abdin's apartment, because they are taunting you, listener. They know that you cannot stop them. Are you sure they weren't trying to escape a Death Star? <laughs> um, she was She was found uh, dead in the, in the trash compactor, and apparently, according to uh, Fox News, who is part of the cover-up, um, the uh, New York uh, Police Department has said that surveillance video has shown the woman, uh, Laura uh, Prykado, whatever surveillance shows her trying to prop the compactor open with a giant beam while someone <laughs> tries to communicate with their machine friend up top to stop it surveillance uh, uh shows her um attempting to communicate with a u.s attorney damaging information on hillary clinton um, the the but Department of Wildlife is looking into any violations regarding the trash compactor's native squid monster. <laughs> um, but basically, the uh, New York Police Department, according to Fox News, has said that this woman was spotted on the 27th floor. Last Jedi was a mistake. Stumbl <laughs> stumbling out of the elevator, uh, intoxicated, and it's um, believed, according to the official story, that she was uh, drunk and she fell down this trash compactor or perhaps crawled in there for warmth or something which you know not a very good way to die but um 
But we all know the real story. This is just another one of the more than 50 people killed by Bill and Hillary Clinton uh, on their <laughs> relentless quest for power. It is like it is my favorite conspiracy theory because um, we're, we're supposed to believe that uh, one of the most incompetent political operatives of our time is the most elite mass murderer of probably recorded U.S. history. I mean, look at Frank Underwood. Like, if you were just <laughs> looking at him as a politician, you'd probably think he was this bumbling fuck-up. Because from the outside, it looks like he can't get anything done. But from the inside, he can throw a journalist in front of a train. But it is like, uh, it's fun to call the Clintons murderers. Because, you know, I mean, in some abstract sense, of course they are. If you want to look at, let's say, uh, the destruction of welfare in this country. Uh, and the rise, cons- uh, the consequent rise in extreme poverty, um, but it is just like one of those things that I guess people on the internet latch onto because the reality is a little more complicated, but it annoys them and they're bad people. So, and we we kind of want to talk about Mark Rich today because Mark Rich uh, was uh, pardoned by Bill Clinton, and he's one of the most straightforward examples of. Um, this kind of uh, uh, insidious corruption that uh, follows the Clinton family. And um, I guess we'll just kind of start with a general biography of Mark Rich, and then we'll uh, talk about um, uh, Pincus Green as well. And then we can kind of talk about, if we want, we can return to the Clinton body count, because that is the research I did yesterday. I did spend several hours yesterday uh, documenting some of their most horrific murders, <laughs> including comedian Sam Kinison <laughs> was killed by Bill Clinton in 1992 because while he was on tour uh, in 1990 in Arkansas, uh, Bill Clinton and Sam Kinison uh, partied um, uh, after a show with two 16-year-old girls, uh, and they used drugs and had uh, sex with these underage women. And this is all fact, by the way. So, uh, And then uh, one of the girls died of an overdose, uh, and the other one was sworn to secrecy. But when Bill Clinton attended Bohemian Grove in 1991, the decision was made that she was a loose end. So she had to be killed. And then Sam Kinison, of course, had to be killed as well in 1992. Um, and that's uh, just all documented fact. I, yeah, I want to get into the details of the evidence in that one. <laughs> Uh, once we once we loop back to that, uh, uh, Sam Kinison's uh, last words were, uh, "It was Bill Clinton, ah, ah! <laughs> Clinton crime family, ah, ah." Um, but so yes, uh, if we have time at the end, we could talk a bit more about the uh, uh, Clinton body count. But for now, let's just talk about the not quite as dangerous, but uh, perhaps more mainstream accepted scandal of the pardon for Mark Rich. So. Uh, Mark Rich was estimated by Forbes worth about a billion dollars as of 2010, but they even admit it that's probably a severe underestimate. Um, the uh, U.S. House of Representatives, when they issued a report on him in 2001, they estimated his worth being up to $8 billion, but it's very hard to estimate because he's hidden you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions, in Panamanian shell companies, among other places. So it's very hard to get a, an exact worth on uh, exact number on his net worth, but he's absolutely a billionaire, or he was. He died in 2013, age 78 of a stroke, but he has two daughters who inherited that massive fortune that he um, uh, that he accumulated, and we'll talk about them a, a bit at the end. But I guess we'll just start with kind of the biography of Mark Rich. 
Um, he uh, And then most of this comes from the book Metal Men by a journalist named Craig Capetus. Uh, the book Metal Men is a, it's very interesting. I didn't read all of it, but I was able to get some, some fascinating insights. So going chronologically, Mark Rich, born in Belgium, 1934. Uh, his family uh, flees in 1940 uh, because of... Uh, <laughs> a certain uh, occupying army that was uh, rapidly approaching Belgium. Um, they moved to Kansas City. They open a costume jewelry shop, I guess. And then they moved to ni- New York City in 1950. And um, Mark Rich attends uh, NYU, but he drops out. And he gets a job with a company called the Phillip Brothers in 1954, which was a commodity trading broker that would later be acquired by Solomon Brothers and uh, subsequently Citigroup. Um, but so he starts uh, in 1954. He's working about si- uh, for 60 bucks a week is his pay. Um, so it's like, uh, let's say, middle class upbringing. You know, like his family did have to flee the Nazis and they were uh, relatively destitute after, but they were able to quickly get themselves going, and uh, he gets a lucrative job in the 1950s economy. And then just like an interesting thing from the book is apparently he um, uh, acquired the, his first like big trade was he got uh, the rights to uh, most of the production of uh, two of the largest uh, mercury producers at the time. Because the United States government in the Korean War in 1950 to 53 had like made huge demands for mercury. I'm not sure exactly why they needed mercury, but mercury was in high demand um, by various governments around the world, and they were stockpiling it. Uh, So Mark Rich's first, like, real coup is he's able to uh, corner the mercury market uh, by striking the deal with these two producers and then selling it to uh, various militaries and governments around the world. And then in uh, 1958... He's trusted enough by the Philip brothers that they send him to Cuba. And this is right around the fall of the Batista regime. Do you and think he cornered the haberdashery market? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is his first experiment with Monopoly. <laughs> I'm just like, do you have any theory? I'm sorry, I didn't look. But what do, you, what do, what do militaries use mercury for? Uh, probably subterfuge to get uh, an opposing uh, governments, hatters, driven insane (laughs) (laughs) they uh they use it to uh inject it into people who they will later need to kill robert f kennedy (laughs) um but so uh uh they uh his company trusts him enough in 1958 to send him to cuba and as we mentioned this fall the batista regime this is the rise of castro and uh Basically, he's able to cut a deal with Castro's incoming government that allows them to keep shipping nickel and copper off of the island. And it's kind of here that, like, another one of his partners says he learns to uh, operate outside of U.S. law, so to speak. And that's uh, very influential for him. Um, Then he goes, Mark Rich goes to uh, Bolivia. Uh, He starts doing a bunch of deals in South America. He's kind of flying back and forth between Bolivia and NYC. And he meets his wife, uh, the extremely talented songwriter um, Denise Rich, in 1966. And she was the heir to the Florsheim fortune, which was apparently like one of the largest shoe fortunes in the United States. Uh, Again, extremely talented songwriter who uh, is, is blessing you with her insights right now so let's see if you can find uh wait 
see if you can find a pattern. I like the idea of making a Mark Rich movie where he's like dealing oil to Saddam Hussein and Ayatollah Khomeini and this is the theme music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these songs are so much better if you imagine that they're all written about Mark Rich. So this is Mandy Moore's Candy. Mm-hmm. Um, the lyrics are intro. Give it to me. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Give it to me. Give it to me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Now give it to me. First one. I'm so addicted to the loving that you're feeding to me. Parentheses. Oh, can't do without it. This feeling's got me weak in the knees. Parentheses. Oh, baby, baby. Body's in withdrawal every time you take it away. Parentheses. Oh, can't you hear me calling, begging you to come out and play? Parentheses. Oh, yeah. Do you know how many Illuminati hits were carried out when those <laughs> lyrics were released on the radio? What's the amount of coded instructions in there. What's great is we did the math, and uh, Denise Rich was about 55 when she wrote this song mm-hmm. uh, for teenagers. Here, I made a playlist of her music. Here are the titles. First one's Frankie, then there's Candy, then there's Crazy Love, then I Have Loved You, then It All Begins With You, Living For Love, Love Is A Crime, and then come together now. And what's really hard about searching for these songs yes. is you have to always type in the uh, performer's name because otherwise you'll get like 20 other songs with the exact same title. <laughs> um, but uh, for some reason, Mark Rich would later go on to have an affair behind the back of that brilliant and insightful songwriter. Yeah. Um, but we will return to uh, uh, Denise Rich, um, who, uh, who wrote Come Together Now. One love, we can make a difference. This is, this is about uh, 15 different horrific tragedies, I believe. Yeah, yeah. This is about Columbine, the Indonesian hurricane, Katrina. Oh, they're raising money for all of them. Fukushima. Well, they, they did literally use it for both the Indian Ocean and Katrina. Like, the Indian Ocean tsunami happened, and I guess she started writing the song, and then Katrina happened. She was like, yeah, that too. It's about that one too. I like the Double idea dope. of writing yeah. like a song for a tragedy and then releasing a remix edition every time there's another <laughs> tragedy. I mean, these lyrics are so they're so deep that that they can apply to any tragedy. Wait, wait, Andy, slow it down. Slow it down. Seth Rich was murdered by the Clintons. Seth Rich was murdered by the Clintons. <laughs> Um, uh, so in, uh, 66, he's, uh, married to Denise Rich. Uh, they would go on to divorce in 1991 due to Mark Rich's affair. Um, Hey, Aaron Carter had some lines in this one. Uh, but we'll get, we're jumping ahead. Um, in 19, uh, and Nick Carter in 1967, uh, Mark Rich, uh, the Phillip brothers transfer him to Madrid, Spain, where he uh, meets a guy named Pincus Green, who's another billionaire, and they would become, you know, lifelong partners. And they develop, according to multiple accounts, what's called the spot oil trading market. And I guess, uh, Steve, if you would be able to give a brief summary of spot oil trading for our listeners, and for me, I don't know either. Well, it wasn't exactly clear from the article I read, but it sounds like prior to... Uh, Mark Rich, Glencore, and all of his involvement in the oil trading business. There wasn't really like a spot. There wasn't a uh, a market maker for people to buy oil, buy and sell oil mm-hmm. at kind of a market 
a market rate, you know, without ha- knowing two or three brokers to get the deal done. Mm-hmm. And so it used to just be like a kind of a shadowy cabal of people. Um, a shadowy, buying, co- a rootless click almost. Yeah. That of like, you know, over the counter deals for millions and millions of barrels of oil at some future price. Mm-hmm. So they're moving from like large futures contracts down to spot price where you can just buy and sell on like the consumer, like the retail level almost. That's so, interesting. So like you could buy one barrel <laughs> of oil? Is that, I don't know what retail level means for like a major commodity. <laughs> like that. Well, you know how nowadays there's a, like there's, you know, you can go on E-Trade and sell commodities now. Oh. You didn't need to. You you weren't able to do any of that. So he for created. A long time. He created the market to, for any any old dipshit like me to be like, I think oil's going <laughs> up with the OPEX, and I can I can just go on E Trade, and that's thanks to Mark Rich, <laughs> and indirectly, hmm. yeah. Can I is did Mark Rich allow me to like order a single Dixie cup of oil to be dri- delivered directly yeah, to have. my apartment? <laughs> If you want to take possession over, um, you know, like a gallon, so like uh, they poured out a gallon of milk and they put oil in it, and you want to buy that, it's yours now. So what's the gain in creating a, um, a spot trading commodities market for something like oil? Isn't I, it? I'm becoming the dumb guy from Planet Money. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it just like less um, leverage or less or more leverage? I guess you don't have to put as much collateral down. I guess. Yeah, like you need less capital in order to potentially in order to make a trade but probably more if you want to make serious money you also need to have more debt in order to fuel those trades Hmm. yeah what so how does that work like Like, um in order let's just call up mark rich and ask him oh wait we can't he's dead (laughs) (laughs) like in futures in if they're taking trading a futures contract a lot Hmm. of the leverage you'd need to make money on those deals is kind of built into the contract Okay. Whereas with spot trading, um, it's kind of what you see is what you get. There's like a more sort of like a, a solid market price to it. And it allows people to take on debt or trade on margin in order to make a lot of money really quickly. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so the, the price is... It becomes more economical Okay. for them to trade on margin in order to increase the risk, but also the reward. And trading on on margin is where you take out some debt to buy a stock. Mm -hmm. And then if the stock goes up, you can kind of pay back the debt with the stock increase. Mm -hmm. And the risk is if you don't pay it back, you will be thrown down a garbage compactor (laughs) by the Clinton crime family. (laughs) They sick Uma Abedin on you. I, I can't wait till the guy who made that Wiener documentary dies in mysterious circumstances. <laughs> uh, the internet will be great that day. Um, but so he, uh, uh, him and Pincus Green set up this uh, uh, oil um, spot mar- spot oil market, um, and uh, they make a lot of money. And basically, they want to raise from Phillips Brothers. Uh, Phillips Brothers doesn't give it to them, so they set out in 1973, Pincus Green and Mark Rich start Mark Rich AG, which later becomes, and is today still, Glencore, uh, a, sw- a Switzerland-based commodities trader. 
Um, and uh, uh, Mark Rich AG, as it was called at the time, was financed initially. Was a name to commemorate their friend Glenn. <laughs> like Glenn's a great guy. Let's For name Glenn. it Glencore. <laughs> Do you know who's a, a really just a, the core of our friendship is Glenn? <laughs> <laughs> you know, between the three of us, <laughs> I think Glenn is the core. <laughs> Um, but so uh, it was financed initially, um, uh, and again, this is from the book Metal Men, um, but it was financed initially with a $2 million loan that Rich's father arranged through a Bolivian bank, and they didn't really get more specific than that, but um, uh, it doesn't seem like his father gave him a $2 million loan as much as his father kind of set up the financing. But another allegation in Metal Men and in the U.S. House is that part of the reason they were able to maintain to get financing is because they had an uh, an under the table deal from an Iranian senator in the Shah's government that they would have like no holds barred access to oil fields in Iran because they had paid the senator off. So I guess part of why the Bolivian bank was able to was willing to extend them a two million dollar line of credit was this guarantee. Uh, that they would have, you know, all this Iranian oil at uh, <clears throat> uh, cut rate prices. It's weird that the Shah government wasn't more beloved by its people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a running theme in Mark Rich's life is uh, dealing with governments that are insanely popular among <laughs> the populace they are ruling. And then, you know, giving them some money as a thank you for, for restoring democracy <laughs> and uh, free enterprise. Um, but so they get this $2 million loan. They also get a million dollar cash injection from another Phillips Brothers trader who comes on board. So it's, you know, um, but, you know, Pink is Green and Mark Rich set up this company and uh, they make a fair bit of money uh, from 73 to 83. But 83, they start to run into legal trouble. And there's a few different aspects to that. But basically, um, in uh, uh, 79, they set up what's called a daisy chain scheme. Uh, which, you know, is part of the libertarian argument for why Mark Rich was the victim of overzealous prosecution was during the oil crisis, the United States set up some regulations on oil prices, which basically said that um, uh, certain kinds of oils could not be, there were three different price categories, and only one of those price categories allowed you to sell oil at the free market. I think it was like smaller wells could be sold at free market, but like large wells had like a price limit, essentially. So this uh, daisy chain scheme, they, they set it up with the owners of a firm called West Texas Marketing, which was an oil reseller. In uh, 79, Mark Rich meets the owners, and they set up this firm. And Mark Rich even arranges for uh, West Texas Marketing to get a loan from uh, the uh, French bank Paribas. Paribas? BNP Paribas? Yeah. Uh, he, he arranges for them to get a loan so that they can operate at scale. And basically what they do is they um, get this crude that's not supposed to be sold at market price. And then they run it through like 50 different, not 50, but several different shell companies and back and forth sales. They had the, and, the help of legitimate businessman Michael Francis. <laughs> um, and so Gangster Notorious for setting up uh, a gas scam. It basically worked like this. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, it's called the yuppie, the yuppie mobster, hmm. or the yuppie don. But I don't think it was a don. Well, it's unfortunate. It's a capo. It's unfortunate that the yuppie don never met um, Al Gore's former chief of staff, <laughs> or he might have been able to secure a pardon for himself. Uh, but we'll get to that. So That's basically, how it all went down. 
So they're uh, they're they're running this um, through West Texas marketing. They're uh, selling oil above regulation that they shouldn't be selling. And again, we can argue about whatever legitimacy of that law. But they're um, the, what really gets them in trouble is they're uh, funneling hundreds of millions of dollars through Panamanian shell corporations and avoiding taxes and all this stuff. And uh, in 1980, uh, the West Texas marketing guys uh, they get caught. Uh, on another oil flipping operation, <laughs> which uh, you know it, it it really shows just like how um, <clears throat> you know everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> even even the frauds are like you can't just do one fraud. You got to have two oil flipping frauds going <laughs> at least with different partnerships that are totally unrelated. But so these guys get caught, and then they meet with um, uh, an attorney, Sandy Weinberg, who was that time with the Southern District of New York. And uh, they essentially say, oh, we can give you Mark Rich if you guys, like, give us a sweetheart deal. And then this is the first time anybody's heard, or at least in the Southern District's office, had heard of Mark Rich and his enterprise. Because of a dirty Uh, fucking rat. Basically. Oh, and so the other thing that happens around this time is... um, By the way, uh, a a series of shell companies, like a daisy chain of shell companies, Mm -hmm. where it's one that is, you know, taking on the debt or whatever of another and another and another, seems to have inspired the Denise Rich lyrics, give it to me, oh, oh, (laughs) yeah, 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 oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, (laughs) She's like, oh, you repeat things, and that way you can create the illusion of a legitimate work. Signs are everywhere. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of like um, her her fucking auto tune being sent through a variety of different shell companies. <laughs> but so in uh, 1979, I only believe Jessica the- Simpson was probably auto tuned. She wrote "I've Loved You" by just by it quote Jessica Simpson. Um, in the music business, if you uh, musicians are credited as co-writers, and the uh, the uh, way that they talk about that is write a word get a third wait so the song is called i love you i have loved you i have loved you and that was dedicated to the apartheid government in south africa that mark rich made a billion dollars selling oil to yes and it's sung by jessica simpson Um, but so in uh, uh, 1979 is the Iranian Revolution. And as oh, we first line is remember that blue crystal sky. You know, <laughs> South Africa is known for its gemstones. <laughs> uh, so in uh, uh, 1979 um, is the Iranian Revolution. And we mentioned the, um, uh, the, the sweetheart deal they had, stuck with, uh, they had struck with a, a senator in Iran. And so the Iranian Revolution complicates it, and it really complicates it because uh, Jimmy Carter uh, and the Congress pass a law after the American hostages are taken that say it's illegal to deal with the Iranian government. And Mark Rich ignores this and is, in fact, setting up a deal to send um, small arms to Iran in exchange for oil. And I get that, you know, some of our leftist listeners might not think dealing with the Iranian government is particularly bad, but he was also double-dealing the Iranian government to Mossad at the time and helping Mossad set up contacts within uh, the Iranian government. That is the uh, Israeli covert forces. (laughs) Just for anyone who doesn't know. Yes, it's the organization that has not been involved in uh, any kind of operations in downtown Manhattan around the year 2001. (laughs) But so he's Tower Seven. Look it up. 
<laughs> Google Tower Seven is the theme of the podcast. But no so one, no one gets all like conspiratorial about the Hilton that was crushed under the towers. What if there was something important there? What if they were going <laughs> the, the other Hilton? Paris Hilton sex tape? <laughs> they had to take it out because it was just too graphic. <laughs> they they hid the it would have made her too the, famous. In the That'd hotel. be a great found footage horror movie. <laughs> Um, but so they set up this deal where they're like giving, you know, small arms and stuff to the Iranian government in exchange for oil during the embargo because of the hostage crisis. So this is the other thing they get hit on. And so um, basically uh, they start uh, in 1982. Uh, Mark Rich, uh, Pincus Green and their company, uh, I believe it's called. Uh, yeah. Mark Rich International was the U.S. branch of this. And in 1982, they start getting subpoenas from a federal grand jury which is basically telling them to turn over documents related to this stuff. And so it's kind of funny. Um, because it was incorporated as a Swiss company, um, they just ignored these subpoenas, and his lawyers kept telling the U.S. government that, like, because it's a Swiss company, we don't have to comply with these subpoenas. <laughs> and they were able to do that for almost two years. So, yeah, in September 1982, the Justice Department starts... Fi- uh, uh, the jury, grand jury starts fining him $50,000 a day for contempt because he's not turning over these documents. And they appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. And then in June 1983, the Supreme Court ju- it orders him to start paying and he pays more than $19 million in fines. But I do just like that it's like when you're a billionaire, you just get to wait for the Supreme Court to rule on your case. Yeah, <laughs> You get the uh, rocket docket directly to the nine. You don't get, you don't have to like, just, you don't get to take your uh, parking tickets to the Supreme Court if you're right. just like a regular person. Like I was there at the off times. I like the idea, like he was like any other defendant and he was like, you know, forced to take a guilty plea because he was relying on like a public defender <laughs> who, who didn't had, like, have time to. Yeah, 20 other cases. Um, you want to know something really cute? What's that? I uh, mentioned that. Uh, to one of my coworkers, mm-hmm. um, since I, I used to uh, know a public defender, and I said, like, yeah, you know, oftentimes even if someone's innocent, they have to negotiate a guilty plea just because they don't have time to um, take on all the cases, and the uh, risk is too big for because of prosecutorial um, uh, ownage. Ownage. Uh, they'll also have like they're at risk of a much much longer sentence um, just because of uh, prosecutors' requests, and so I, I told all that to this one guy and he, at, uh, I work with and he was just like flabbergasted. He was like, that is, they can't do that. <laughs> it is unconstitutional. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. But that's what happens. And he's like, but they can't do that. And I'm like, they do. <laughs> They're not, uh, the, the, yeah, uh, congratulations on finding out the legal system's broken today. That's like when I found out that Bill Clinton took half a million for his library and more than $1.1 million in campaign contributions to pardon this guy (laughs) like you can't just take money in such an explicit manner to give (laughs) criminal pardons out they can't do that (laughs) oh god um that is undemocratic (laughs) uh it's funny like so there's a house report on this and so uh, we'll kind of get to it but uh, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, at various points, referred to wanting to create, quote, the most ethical administration in history. <laughs> and he might have just missed the mark a little bit on that. Um, but so... Uh, no, he just found another mark. But so the other mark part... Rich, guys. 
the the Mark Rich story, like I admire the balls on this guy. I will say because it, not only do they like spend you know a year and a half refusing to turn over documents and then just like pay the fine like it was nothing, <laughs> uh, but then the other scheme he comes up with is Mark Rich sells Mark Rich International, which was again the U.S. branch of this company. They sell it to a new company called Claridon, Claridon Ltd. With the same employees, same address, same board of directors, bank credit guaranteed by Mark Rich, and it was it was an attempt to convince the U.S. government that Mark Rich International didn't exist anymore, <laughs> because they just essentially sold the company to a company with the exact same everything. Like they they won't they won't check for me if I change the name on the door with the same address. Yeah, who who gets fooled by that? <laughs> Maybe they were fishing for a technicality, like when uh, um, when we were talking about uh, Ken Langone when he uh, when they dropped the case because suddenly he they changed the New York Stock Exchange to for profit. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I guess he should have just like waited another uh, twenty years for the um, complete corruption of the New York judiciary to take place. <laughs> But yes, no, I, unfortunately, the judge didn't buy that. But I do like the idea of him being like, well, uh, so our next case is Mark Rich International. Wait, what? <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> I guess we got to close the case now. Everybody go home. <laughs> um, but so they try that scheme. And then the other thing they do, in August 1983, IRS agents stop a plane at JFK, which was headed for Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, and they... Uh, they detain a female paralegal who worked for Mark Rich who had uh, two steamer trunks full of documents that had been subpoenaed and that Mark Rich had promised to turn over. What so, are steamer trunks? Yeah, what's that? Oh, it's like um it's like those old luggage trunks. Uh, I'll show you a picture. Oh, that you that you see in people in old movies carrying on yeah, trains. Yeah, basically. Yeah, like these things, you know, like I guess they were called because, like, on steamer ships, you know, back in the day, oh. people would bring all their belongings in these steamer trunks. But yes, that's what gave her, that's what tipped off the IRS is that somebody in 1983 was using this tr- this uh, suitcase that hadn't been seen since a uh, hundred years ago. I mean, I get I get the feeling that it's just kind of regular protocol for the IRS to search the plane to Zurich <laughs> <laughs> every day. <laughs> All right, let's get this over. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so I know what you'll find in these steamer drawers. Yeah, <laughs> it's like. They're just like, oh, uh, I guess it's just Nazi gold in this steamer <laughs> trunk. We better let it go through. <laughs> Not what we're looking for here. <laughs> the IRS boards and like half the plane commits suicide. <laughs> <laughs> We've been discovered. <laughs> um, but so, uh, uh, in, as we mentioned, August 1983, the IRS agents stop the plane. They grab all these documents that they were trying to like smuggle out to Switzerland. And so um, Switzerland, of course, the extremely ethical country that has uh, done nothing wrong in its history and is, of course, uh, very reliable for these kinds of uh, financial fraud prosecutions. Uh, The Swiss government... um, They can't do anything wrong. They put on fun costumes and guard the Pope with pikes. They uh, they they uh, make the uh, Pope's jewelry with um, certain (laughs) shipments they received throughout the 1940s. Um, so but they're neutral. Yes, the Swiss government <laughs> is very neutral. So it, they um, 
the Swiss government protests on uh, behalf of Mark Rich. They say this is, you know, like politically motivated. Uh, and of course, this is because Mark Rich at this point, his company, uh, what would become Glencore in Switzerland, is a major taxpayer in Switzerland. And uh, of course, after he was indicted, um, the contemporary New York Times quoted a Swiss official saying that the extradition treaty with the United States, with uh, Switzerland and the United States, did not cover tax matters because tax evasion was not a crime in Switzerland. So, well, yeah, not, wait, uh, I guess uh, from a foreign entity. Uh, extraditable. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, uh, nor the official added from the New York Times does the treaty cover the act of trading with an enemy, which was another thing Mark Rich was eventually um, <clears throat> uh, indicted for. Uh, interestingly enough, he was also a major supplier to the Soviet Union, and one of the Soviet state media papers had a, had a story calling this Reagan's blackmail, saying it was an attempt to interfere in the affairs of Western European countries through the threat of economic sanctions. And interestingly enough... So wait, it, he was trading with the Soviet Union, but mm-hmm. then the, the Soviet papers were anti-Mark Rich. No, no, no. They were pro-Mark Rich. They oh, said okay. this was a blackmail attempt by... Um, the Reagan administration, and they were attempting to interfere in the affairs of Western European countries through the threat of economic sanctions. Okay. Yes. And interestingly enough, one of Mark Rich's deals with the Soviets involved uh, sending oil to apartheid-era South Africa as it was under UN sanctions, and then, I guess, getting uranium from them that he sent back to the Soviet Union. (laughs) Um, He was also a major supplier of Soviet grain and other stuff. Wait, you're saying that he dealt uranium and to Russia and as a friend of Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I'm just saying, uh, we, we better investigate the like stroke he had in uh, 2013 <laughs> because I'm not really convinced by the official story. Sounds like he's like a Civ 2 player. He knows, <laughs> he knows that he's lost, basically, early on in the game. Yeah. And so he just goes into wild trading sessions <laughs> with that's, like Gandhi for his nuclear weapons. That's why he game. dealt so much with communist governments, because he knew they didn't get a war penalty when they <laughs> invade Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> um, But so in uh, September 1983, the Southern District of New York, which at the time Rudy Giuliani was the head attorney, but he was essentially the guy at the press conference. Uh, Sandy Weinberg was the attorney at the Southern District of New York who was the lead prosecutor on this case. And then he compiles the indictment. It's filed September 1983. And Rudy Giuliani is the guy who, like, gets on the press conference and, you know, makes a name for himself and later goes on to be mayor. Um, But so in 1983, um, Mark Rich... And uh, his partner, Pincus Green, are indicted on 51 counts, including tax evasion, trading with the enemy, uh, violating the uh, oil price regulations we mentioned earlier. And at this point, they uh, flee. (laughs) They both uh, flee to Switzerland along with their families. Essentially, they spend about 17 years hiding out in Switzerland. Um, And then there's just kind of like fun stories. Oh, interestingly enough. Did Denise go with them? Yes. Initially, Denise went uh, with her husband to Switzerland. Uh, another fun thing from the 1983 indictment was apparently they devised secret telex codes to transmit details of uh, the oil deals uh, with Khomeini during the hostage crisis. Um, I, I guess I don't know exactly how that would work. Maybe I'll just cut this. No, let's get into telex. <laughs> Which wife do you think Giuliani was on during this? <laughs> <laughs> um, but so... Uh, do you Ju- think one of his wives divorced him because she was friends with the mob and didn't like what he did to them? 
for anyone who wants to see the extended 45 minute discussion of different models of telex that's <laughs> uh, going to be on the patreon yeah, visit our <laughs> patreon <laughs> our bonus episode is reading the wikipedia of telex <laughs> while we're supposed to be recording all right, so Mark Rich, uh, uh, they had these secret codes for the uh, deals with Khomeini during the hostage crisis, um, but they flee. Wait, hold on. The Telex network was a public switch network of teleprinters similar to a telephone network for the purposes of sending text-based messages. Hmm. wonder if uh, for the that purpose- technology is going to catch on. For the purposes of uh, transmitting uh, arms for oil deals uh, <laughs> with uh, regimes that are sanctioned by the U.S. government. But so in 1984, it was about a year after the indictment, the company, Mark Rich AG, pleads guilty to 38 counts of tax invasion, 50 million in illegal oil profits. The telex term refers to the network, not the teleprinters. Point-to-point teleprinter systems had been in use long before telex exchanges were built in the 1930s. Go on, Sean. I like the idea of like somebody being like really autistic about telex and just gets like so angry that they would abuse this beautiful <laughs> technology to commit illegal acts and violate U.S. sanctions. There's one apartment, probably within like a three mile radius of where we're recording, uh-huh. that someone just has like 30 different models of telex <laughs> printers. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pink as green. He was born in Flatbush. <laughs> they ran the telex transmissions out of his flatbush apartment we're at grub stakers south <laughs> yeah today we're at a new grub stakers location and we've got this lovely little boy named uh leon mm-hmm. who uh, you might hear meowing in the background mm-hmm. and uh he he seems like a perfect gentleman uh so in 84 mark rich ag pleads guilty to 38 counts this is the business itself pleads guilty to 38 counts tax evasion illegal oil profits uh making false statement to the u.s government uh and that company went to jail yeah they pay 133 million dollars in fines but fun uh side note about this mark rich was actually uh, i think with another partner the 50 percent owner of 20th century fox at this point and because the u.s government is coming after the company the u.s government could have conceivably seized 20th Century Fox, so Mark Rich has to sell 20th Century Fox to Rupert Murdoch. And the story of how Rupert Murdoch came to control 20th Century Fox is uh, 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 one gentleman decided to sell Iran some guns (laughs) when he shouldn't have done that. And uh, that's the story of how a uh, massive propaganda empire developed in the United States of America. Rupert Murdoch was like, well, I'm going to make a whole channel that talks about how another guy who sold guns is the greatest human being to walk the planet. That's how we got the Simpsons. Rupert (laughs) Murdoch is like, uh, uh, well, I've paid $133 million for this. Time to put a sex predator in charge. (laughs) Um, A friend of Rachel Maddow's. A close personal friend. Uh, But so... um, uh, That's how it all went down. (laughs) Uh, so uh, the, the the firm pleads guilty. Uh, they pay this $133 million fine, but the indictments and the warrants for Mark Rich and Pincus Green are still outstanding. They make various attempts to like negotiate with the government, but the government won't like take jail off the um, the table. I think the government was offering them like a three-year jail sentence in exchange for like cooperating and pleading guilty, and they were like, no, we don't want to do a day in jail. So they stay in Switzerland, and then there's just a couple little cute attempts to arrest them. Like in 87, Interpol issues a red notice warrant um, that requests both their arrests uh, if they're seen within uh, Interpol countries. Um, And so, like, 
Uh, one operation, this is from the House report uh, on the Mark Rich pardon. In uh, fall of 80, 1987, U.S. Marshals assigned to the project barely missed apprehending Rich in France after he canceled a meeting with an African oil minister. Then a few months later, November 87, they again almost captured him. They were tipped off by a businessman close to Rich that Rich would be taking a private plane That's to England. For a weekend party, uh, the U.S. Marshals set a trap for Rich at the airport in Kent. However, thick fog settled in over London, and Rich's plane turned back to Switzerland. So um, he what was saved by London fog. What was he liked the the, the jackets? <laughs> what was the trap? Was it was it uh, an oil commodities <laughs> note inside a bear trap? <laughs> The the trap was under under a big box with a stick. <laughs> the trap was they were gonna shout gun and shoot him a hundred times <laughs> and then plant something on him. Um but so uh you know he's kind they're of trying to plant cocaine and then they're like, wait, he's there's already too much cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> he's on the lamb, uh, along with Pinkus Green, and then um his partner, Pincus Green, is another billionaire, and uh, there's not that much information on him online, but he's kind of like the um, the lieutenant, if you will, and he is still alive. He was born 1934 right here in Flatbush, Brooklyn. He's Orthodox Jewish, so he doesn't work on uh, Sabbath, you know, sundown Friday to uh, sundown Saturday. Um, and Forbes, as of 2005, had him at a $1.2 billion net worth. And um, just like random facts about him, he was... Um, he was called the Admiral uh, at uh, at this firm because he had a, quote, encyclopedic knowledge of shipping and freight rates, uh, which were important in the trade of bulk commodities, is according to the New York Daily News. is the Admiral. That's a... Seems like a low bar for a nickname like the Admiral. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing how much it costs? Yeah. <laughs> That's something Admirals are differently. Known yeah. <laughs> He was uh, he was called the Admiral for his work um, sinking the flotilla going into the West Bank. <laughs> he was called Gaza the Strip. Admiral for taking massive bribes in Southeast Asia <laughs> and inspiring a culture of corruption that's still being unraveled um, in the United States Navy. But so like Mark Rich, he was a college dropout. He was one of uh, eight children uh, in, uh, in Flatbush, again, uh, to an Orthodox Jewish family. He helped his father sell uh, uh, candy or confectionaries is the New York Daily News term to uh, small candy stores. Um, and he started in the mailroom of Phillips Brothers. And then, of course, he meets, meets Mark Rich. Candyman would have been a much better nickname. <laughs> the candy. <laughs> <laughs> he meets, meets Mark Rich in uh, Madrid, where they developed the, the spot oil market. Oh, yeah. And he, uh, he later, according to New York Daily News, in late 1990, he had a heart bypass operation and then he retired from what would become Glencore. So he kind of stepped back from the business in 1990. He missed out on their later action in Russia. Oh, and Wait, wait. Say, say that last thing again. How um, He missed out on their later action in Russia when he retired in 1990. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was coming. Hey there, I'm Chris Hayes uh, from MSNBC. Thanks for watching MSNBC. <laughs> um, but so uh, he had kind of like a less audacious lifestyle than um, than Mark Rich. Mark Rich like had uh, when he was in the U.S. He had, uh, according to New York Daily News, a huge East Side apartment filled with Picassos. Whereas Green lived in a modest home in Flatbush. And the quote from the article is: "If you look at 500 homes in Flatbush, 250 of them were nicer than Pinkies." 
And uh, we're very happy to be here recording in Flatbush in a home nicer than a fugitive billionaire. This was actually Pincus's apartment. <laughs> On the floor, first floor stairwell, there was human poop in the corner. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. I saw Seriously? that. Seriously? Yeah. The, All right, leave this in. <laughs> <laughs> but the lobby's quite nice. Mm-hmm. I like these. Please be a dog. It costs 2500 a month to live here. It looked like human poop. It looked like someone came in the, the lobby. and. All right. I'm God. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, if you know know anyone who needs a room here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so uh, Eric Holder um, comes into this uh, in uh, in the 1990s. So basically, to kind of summarize this story, uh, Eric Holder uh, was the deputy attorney general for Bill Clinton, and he comes off really bad in this story. But basically, Jack Quinn was Al Gore's chief of staff up to 1997. He then leaves, goes back to the private sector. Um, and then an interesting thing happens where um, uh, uh, the Mark Rich, after he's not able to get the Israeli government to intercede on his to successfully intercede on his behalf, he changes strategies. He hires a PR consultant named Gershwin uh, Kekset, I guess of uh, 4chan fame. Um, so Kekset, uh, he he uh, he. For the <laughs> In late 1998, it's again from the U.S. House, uh, uh, Kekset is like sitting next to Eric Holder at a dinner celebrating the merger of um, Benz and Chrysler. Uh, you know, those those dinners they have to uh, celebrate the um, <clears throat> uh, elimination of con- competition within <laughs> the U.S. economy. Um, but so in 1998, they're at this dinner. And he was starting and- the conversation the way... Everyone starts a conversation with him, which is, what the fuck kind of name is Gershwin? <laughs> he started the conversation by going, praise Keck. <laughs> um, so at, at the dinner, uh, uh, Kekset asked Eric Holder whom U.S. attorneys are accountable to. Holder explained that they answer to Maine Justice, where Holder worked. Uh, Kekset had Mark Rich in mind, but did not mention Mark Rich's name at the time. Kekset then asked... Uh, uh, Holder what someone should do if they were improperly indicted by an overzealous prosecutor. Holder told him that a person in that situation should try to work it out and resolve it, further stating that, quote, lawyers know there is a path back to DOJ to me. Uh, Holder told Kekset that such a person should hire a lawyer who knows the process. He comes to me and we work it out. Kekset asked who such a lawyer would be, and Holder pointed to an individual sitting at a nearby table and said, there's Jack Quinn. He's a perfect example. Um, And so Jack Quinn, as we mentioned, was Al Gore's former chief of staff, and Holder uh, basically told a stranger that if you have a problem, you should hire that guy, and he'll come to me, and we'll work it out. (laughs) So, of course, Mark Rich uh, gets Jack Quinn on a $50,000 a month retainer uh, to lobby uh, Eric Holder and uh, Bill Clinton for a pardon on the way out. And uh, uh, Eric Holder... um, uh, according, again, to this House report, the uh, most credible explanation they come up with is Eric Holder wanted to be the attorney general for Al Gore. And, uh, again, Jack Quinn was his former chief of staff, would theoretically have Al Gore's ear. So Jack Quinn starts lobbying him for this Mark Rich pardon, and Holder's like, oh, okay, so I could get my attorney general job if I get this pardon done. So uh, Holder lobbies Bill Clinton directly. Um, and they kind of bypass the entire usual pardon process. 
whereby usually the U.S. attorneys who prosecuted the case, in this case the Southern District of New York, are supposed to look at the pardon and you know make recommendations. Uh, the Justice Department is supposed to review it, and it's supposed to go through all these different levels. And they basically cut out like everybody. Um, and then uh, it it did not hurt that Denise Rich, um, at this point uh, Mark Rich's ex-wife, uh, but they had since reconciled, had donated more than $1.1 million to Democrats throughout the 90s and early 2000s and donated $450,000 to Bill Clinton's library. Um, and then... Uh, Exchanging for uh, modern campaign contribution, non-limits, that's probably the equivalent of $5 billion. <laughs> Um, but I guess if we can just play this audio drop of um, Jack Quinn, uh, again, uh, Al Gore's former chief of staff, uh, hired by Mark Rich for 50000 a month retainer. Uh, he was, uh, th- this pardon was controversial, so he was called to testify, and he uh, says this about Eric Holder's role. On the Monday following the pardon, Mr. Holder told me that he had said to the White House counsel he was neutral leaning towards favorable on the pardon. I had a subsequent conversation with the White House counsel and I said to her that Mr. Holder had told me that. Her response to me, while not confirming his advice in so many words, was if Mr. Holder hadn't participated in the process or something to this effect, this pardon wouldn't have happened. I had a... One of the great things about this video, it's a shame, like, people can't see it because he's staring like his eyes are looking straight up and he's just kind of wobbling and like like a weird like a puppet mm-hmm. like a uh, like uh, he looks a little like he's about to vomit uh. but it is interesting that um, uh, Eric Holder was of course uh, uh, castigated uh, in this open hearing by the house for his role in this pay-to-play pardon and it of course, destroyed his political career. Oh, yeah. And he was uh, never invited back uh, to become attorney general <laughs> that he so desperately wanted to be. But I do just like that it's like, I mean, I have no idea what the fuck newspapers Obama read before appointing this guy attorney general where he's like, oh, yeah, so he's uh, uh, took a pay-to-play deal for uh, the most controversial part in, in modern presidential history, and uh, he also helped... Um, Chiquita brands get away with mur- literal murder of union organizers, but uh, that's, I don't, I don't think that's I w- the kind of change that we want to bring to Washington. <laughs> well, we want to Obam- make it even worse. Obama's uh, first term was largely defined by the fact that after he made peace with Hillary Clinton and mm-hmm. cetera, Secretary of State, mm-hmm. he didn't have uh, as deep of Washington connections as the Clintons, and so they had a lot of uh, the voice in who would fill out Obama's cabinet. Mm-hmm. And so Holder was almost definitely like handpicked by the Clintons. Yeah. He comes in. The first thing he does is uh, shut down the investigation into the murder of Sam Kinison. But so uh, there's just, there's just no evidence there. You know, if there were evidence, we would prosecute it, but there was no evidence. uh, Bill Clinton. That's what he said about the banks. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, later said uh, of the pardon quote, it was terrible politics. It wasn't worth the damage to my reputation. And he also later blamed the Israeli government for interceding because... Um, Bill Clinton's sterling reputation. Uh, uh, basically, as we mentioned, um, the Israeli government had lobbied on uh, behalf of um, uh, uh, Mark Rich because he had done work for the Mossad in Iran and such. 
Um, but I, I'm sure the uh, massive donations to the Clinton Library and the more than a million dollars donations to Clinton and uh, Associated Democrats um, had nothing to do with the process. So what do you think Bill Clinton calls all the uh, sexual harassment charges against him? Just bad politics? Uh, I think he calls them uh, consensual affairs with uh, his employees, <laughs> just like the anybody would do. Oh, and then... Um, and so Holder also later distanced himself from the pardon, saying it was, quote, was the result of poor judgment, initially not recognizing the seriousness of the Rich case, and then by the time that he recognized that the pardon was being considered, being distracted by other matters. <laughs> <laughs> and again, this is the guy, Eric Holder, lobbied Bill Clinton directly and then subverted the entire traditional pardon process to get this done. He's a much more sophisticated Alberto Gonzalez. Like, Alberto Gonzalez just right, had I one line. Recall. Yeah, I do not recall. Mm -hmm. But Holder clearly uh, grew up with a thesaurus. Um, so it's it's kind of unfortunate that we're running long on this because I do just kind of want to give an overview of uh, Mark Rich's various uh, dealings. Um, just according to Slate, quote, he had a habit of dealing with nations with which trade was embargoed, like Iran, Libya, Cuba, and apartheid South Africa. And uh, uh, from the House report, a former Mark Rich trader explained the standard practices of Rich's companies as follows. To go into places like Iran and do honest business is naive. naive. I'd figure 15% of your net in payoffs for every deal made. So basically, 15% of every deal that Mark Rich was making was going back to bribes and government officials. And uh, there's just like a bunch of little fun stories. Uh, in 1978, Rich and Green were caught diverting Nigerian oil shipments to uh, apartheid South Africa. When the Nigerians cut, threatened to cut off relations with Rich, he paid a $1 million bribe to the Nigerian transport minister to get the contract back. Um, he paid uh, the Jamaican president uh, $45,000 to send the Jamaican track and field team to the 1984 Olympics. And in return, he was given a 10-year agreement to purchase... Um, uh, an aluminum uh, contract in Jamaica from an aluminum plant. Um, and then, you know, he was essentially like, as we mentioned, he was dealing with Iran, giving them uh, guns for oil. He was, uh, according to this House report, he supplied about 6% of all oil imports to South Africa between 79 and 86, earning upwards of $1 billion uh, for the, uh, from the transactions. Um, According to a former Rich shareholder, at the time of their indictment in the U.S., Rich and Green uh, were trading Soviet and Iranian oil to the apartheid government in South Africa in exchange for... Uh, let's try that. <laughs> yeah, stay with us. In exchange for... Hey there, I'm Chris Hayes from MSNBC. Thanks for watching. In exchange for uranium, which they in turn sold back to the Soviet Union. Um, they were also like involved, we mentioned on the Oleg Deripaska episode, Glencore's role in uh, stripping assets from the collapsed Soviet Union and the chaos that uh, went into Russia. And in fact, we also we'll mentioned... Right back. <laughs> we also mentioned Glencore's ties to Russian organized crime. Um, we'll uh, be right back. Uh, so again, from the House report, according to press accounts, law enforcement agencies, including the FBI and CIA, had information indicating that Mark Rich had financial ties to the Russian mafia. According to one U.S. intelligence source who spoke to the press, quote, There's no such thing as a mafia. <laughs> Uh, quote, Bill Clinton would have found out about the relationship if he had bothered to ask either the FBI or CIA. Um, and then another source told the press, uh, that Rich had been linked specifically to... Uh, it's too bad the president has no connection to those agencies. 
Mark Rich had been linked specifically to um, Mikhail Shornoy, uh, and uh, Talia Levin is not Sorry. here to correct my pronunciation, so that's the way it is uh, <laughs> properly pronounced. Um, but so basically, uh, uh, he actually provide Mark Rich provided the seed money to necessary to start up what was called Transworld Metals, which was again a um, uh, uh, front organization for the Russian mafia, where they used uh, Watch mur- this space. <laughs> where they Seriously. used murder and intimidation to uh, buy up at gunpoint aluminum supplies of the rapidly uh, collapsing. I thought it was a trans metal band. <laughs> <laughs> and so he also. Uh, I thought mar- it was a front organization for Transworld Airlines <laughs> when they quote went out of business and then gave black market flights. That's my conspiracy. It was actually a, a front organization for trans-exclusionary radical feminists <laughs> to uh, launder their ill-gotten gains uh, from their placards that say, uh, "All you can only be a biological woman. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, Mark Rich is also linked to a guy named uh, Grigory Luchansky, who's a Georgian-born Israeli right citizen, uh, who's another significant player in Russian mob activities. And according to... Um, According to press accounts, he uh, worked with Mark Rich in the early 90s selling Russian oil and aluminum from formerly state-run enterprises. Uh, He's also been accused of, quote, drug trafficking and smuggling nuclear weapons. Uh, But, uh, yeah, so basically, uh, because Mark Rich had all these contacts with the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union collapsed and there was like a mad dash for Russia's commodity resources, he was kind of a go-to guy uh, from all these international firms looking to uh, uh, get into the um, stripping of a a, a rapidly collapsing economy. Um, So he's had a lot of interesting deals. You mean rapidly liberated capitalist economy? (laughs) I like the idea of there being an inverse relationship um, between freedom and GDP growth in the Soviet <laughs> Union. <laughs> like, as the standard of living, as the PPP goes down, the freedom goes up. <laughs> uh, you don't life expectancy. S- you don't tra- want to see this PP going down. <laughs> life expectancy uh, tracked pretty close to GDP. Um, and so, uh, and again, just to kind of like skip ahead, but. They've been linked to uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Hell yeah. They were linked to uh, Kusku, or whatever his name is, in Romania. Who was, was he his black market Kusku. sunglasses supplier? <laughs> yes. Did you just uh, say Kusku? Kusku? Ceausescu? Ceausescu. Okay, Jesus. We are never going to have a Romanian on this podcast. <laughs> I refuse to have my pronunciation corrected. Um, but yes, of course, the Romanian dictator who is... Later executed by his populace, uh, he was linked to uh, a deal with Serbia while they were in the middle of uh, committing what has been called a genocide. Uh, and he was also like linked to the dictatorship in Angola. And there was just like a, a, fu- a, a funny story where um, uh, various Western oil executives were called to a meeting with Angola's oil agents. Uh, expecting a group of communist officials, the executives were, quote, visibly stunned when the communist representative who walked into the conference room turned out to be Pinky Green, greeting Exxon executives with a hearty, how you doing? And that's from the House report on this. But so I guess uh, we should maybe talk a bit about Denise Rich and then the daughters, and then we can wrap up. Do you need some background music? <laughs> Uh, so Denise Rich, we mentioned earlier, was the uh, uh, famous songwriter. Um, I will say this for Denise Rich. 
she's good at uh, percussive lyrics. Like, she can get all the syllables on the beats. All right, so... Uh, Which not everyone can do. So according to the House report, um, she was the daughter of Emil Eisenberg, who founded Desco Incorporated, one of the largest shoe manufacturers in the United States. So she was the heir to that fortune. And then in 66, at the age of 22, she marries Mark Rich, uh, who she had met six months earlier. Um, She fled to Switzerland with him, and then while in exile, she began her musical career, Um, you know. Uh, the way everyone does by uh, marrying into and inheriting eight billion dollars, <laughs> but so she becomes uh, she begins her musical career while in exile uh, in Switzerland with her husband, and then according to this house report, in approximately 1990, Denise discovered that Mark Rich had taken up with a younger woman, uh, model Gisela Rossi. Um, in 91, Denise divorced uh, Mark Rich. In the ensuing legal battle, she got a settlement believed to be about $500 million. Um, they were on very for- poor, spe- they weren't on speaking terms. However, in 1996, one of their daughters, uh, Gabrielle, dies of AML leukemia. Uh, Mark Rich is not able to go to the funeral in the United States uh, because he was a fugitive from justice. Um, but this kind of has a reconciliation. And as we mentioned in the 90s, she is a, a, a big fundraiser for the uh, Democratic Party and Bill Clinton specifically. You know what she said to, uh, to Mark Rich mm-hmm. when they got divorced? I have loved you. Uh, but so, just By Jessica of, Simpson. Uh, so a, a fun story is after her divorce, uh, Denise Rich uh, uh, returns to New York and purchases what is reportedly the largest penthouse on Fifth Avenue, a 28-room triplex full of art by Picasso, uh, Dolly, Warhol, etc., as well as a staff of 20 servants, including, quote, two cooks, a stylist, and a, quote, personal healer. Um, because, you know, when uh, you've cashed those checks from Omar Gaddafi, <laughs> <laughs> you need a personal healer. Uh, and then uh, they gave, uh, Denise Rich and her daughters gave more than $1.1 million to federal political causes between 93 and 2000, all but 5000 of which was to Democrats. And then they gave 450000 to Bill Clinton's library. Um, and she describes having a very close relationship with Bill Clinton. So who knows? So did they were, so they, when uh, Mark died, they were separated. Mm-hmm. But... She is still so. She and Mark both gave to Democrats separately. No, it's believed that he was able to launder his contributions to Democrats through her, and oh. she apparently, according to this House report, lobbied Bill Clinton directly at least three times to pardon her husband, her ex-husband, I should okay. say. And um, they have two daughters. Well, you know what they say? Yes. Love is a crime. <laughs> By Anastasia. Uh, they had uh, uh, two daughters. Um, uh, Danielle Rich and uh, Ayana Rich, and um, <clears throat> and if I could just read something about the daughters because they are of course still alive. They're still on one of them still on Facebook, and they are the inheritors of this Mark Rich fortune. So they are really the billionaires at the the subject of this episode, and um, uh, just a, a little bit about them um, from the uh, website. From the website dailyentertainmentnews.com, a little bit about them. Um, Ayanna Rich, 
uh, was the couple's first child, born in Madrid in in 1967. Uh, She's immersed herself in both art and fashion. Having lost her sister to leukemia, she serves as a board member of Gabrielle's Angel Foundation, which is named for her uh, sister who passed away in 96. Um, uh, The 46-year-old is well-known for her fresh-spirited sculptures and paintings. Uh, she is a graduate of the Parsons School of Design in Paris and has made her name for herself in both the United States and Europe. She created a line of clothing entitled Size 6 to complement her new artwork being shown by the gallerist Gracie Mansion. Uh, Rich's art has been praised as an alternate reality where everything is larger than life and what is normal is usually off kilter. Now I know why modern sculptures are so bad. It's because everyone who can break through is like the child of a billionaire. <laughs> I like, uh, she operates in a, 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 her art operates in an alternative reality where you're able to put, to <laughs> petition the president directly to get your father pardoned. <laughs> you know what that's called? Yeah. Living for love. And she is the mom, uh, Ayana is the mom of four young sons, uh, and she married a man named Kenny, uh, Schachter, uh, who has been curating, uh, contemporary art exhibits in museums and galleries for in excess of 20 years. And I like that this, uh, this article refers to her husband as a quote, art entrepreneur. And do you know what an art entrepreneur does? They marry a billionaire. Uh, but, oh, just like one other fun thing is I found Iona Rich's Facebook, uh, I'll put it on the Tumblr before she shuts it down, but the one public post that she made in, uh, January 7, 2014, Iona Rich writes, quote, they should take Dennis Rodman's passport away and make him live in North Korea. Let's see how many piercings he can have there, and let's see what asshole, and she spells asshole, A-S-S-W-H-O-L-E, uh, and let's see what asshole spew, and she spells that wrong too, that comes out of his mouth, they accept before he is sent to be eaten by a pack of wolves. And this is, of course, when uh, Dennis Rodman is visiting the hermit kingdom of North Korea. Um, <clears throat> and do you know what might have enabled Dennis Rodman's visit to North Korea? Uh, would be her um, father's oil deals with Kim Il-sung of <laughs> North Korea. <laughs> It seems like she has to learn to uh, come together now. <laughs> I just like that it's like, um, you know, she loved her father so much that she never Googled him. <laughs> um, and then uh, they're also, uh, the younger daughter is Danielle Rich. Um, she lives in London. Uh, she was a former actress. Daniela has been involved in film for a number of years and has had role in Steve Buscemi's Trees Lounge and Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides. She's an avid writer and has recently undertaken the production of a series of articles and a novel. Um, And she is uh, involved in charitable foundations, particularly with regard to uh, Israel. And we should mention that both Mark Rich and um, Mr. Green his partner gave uh, more than $100 million in charitable donations to various causes and museums in Israel um, because they are very comfortable dealing with apartheid regimes. <laughs> well, folks, uh, I, I think in, clothing, in closing, it's very sad that in retaliation um, <clears throat> for not being grateful enough for the pardon, uh, uh, Mark Rich's estranged son, Seth Rich, was murdered by the Clintons <laughs> in 2016. Uh, and then at gunpoint. Even after he was able to come back into the family and disregard his bastard name. 
and then Seth Snow. And then even more horrifying <laughs> is after after the Clintons um, lost the election, they still went out there and made his parents at gunpoint write in the Washington Post that their son did not have access to leak the Podesta emails because they feared for their lives. Um, so we mentioned at the beginning of the episode that um, a, a woman was found dead outside of Huma Abdin's apartment. And uh, as we mentioned, Fox News has reported that she was unfortunately intoxicated and probably fell into the uh, uh, trash compactor. But I would just like you to note, listener, that her ex-husband was a business associate of George Soros. So take with that what you will and draw your own conclusions. But all I'm saying is that Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton have murdered at least 50 people uh, who have been tied to them in mysterious uh, deaths. Uh, the Clintons run the most elite hit squad in the world. Uh, the hit squad has consulted on the Hitman video games. It's not widely acknowledged, <laughs> but Square Enix has reached out to the Hillary Clinton hit team for level design ideas. In fact, if you go back and you play Hitman 2 Contracts, there is a, a body disposal where you have to dump somebody <laughs> down a garbage chute in an apartment building. So they knew. These are... These are all things that have been planned. They murdered Sam Kinison, Vince Foster, um, Ed Wiley. Uh, 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 a White House intern was shot to death in a Starbucks in 1997 to prevent her from talking about the Monica Lewinsky scandal. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, Seth Rich. I'm Andy Palmer. <laughs> Steve Jeffries. All right, I'm Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with Yogi next week.